Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. Well, after Elijah is caught up in a whirlwind and taken to our side of the veil, Elisha crosses back through the Jordan by parting the waters with the cloak Elijah has left behind. Uh, we're picking back up where Elijah's just left in 2 Kings 2, 11 and onward. This miraculous recrossing of the Jordan confirms to him and the fifty onlooking prophets that Elijah did not take all my spirit with him, and there's still plenty left for Elisha to walk and work in. As if to prove this point, Elisha's first considered act as a standalone journeyman prophet is to miraculously disinfect and purify a rancid spring, an act laden with symbolism. That's 2 Kings 2, 19. Water is life, and a regular metaphor for our spirit. So it's more than fitting that this be Elisha's first solo miracle, showing that not only is our spirit around, but so is our penchant for bringing out the meaning embedded in what may seem to be simple things. If you want to fill in the blanks with the groundwater in Israel turning sour while she trusts in Baal, feel free. Returning to the subject of kings, Jehoshaphat is still around, reigning over Judah in the south. Mind you, he's already tapped his son Jehoram to be the next king. Jehoram, by the way, means Yahweh is exalted, if only his life would match his name. Listen on. Jehoshaphat co-reigns with his crown prince son for a few years. Now, you've got to remember the early lapse of judgment that got Jehoshaphat allied with Ahab. Well, during that period of chumminess, Jehoshaphat actually gave his unfortunate consent for a marriage alliance with Ahab. Jehoshaphat's crown prince Jehoram wed Ahab's and thus Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. Go ahead and let that send shivers down your spine. That was in 2 Kings 8.18. So, while we've got Jehoshaphat and his crown prince running Judah together for a while, another son of Ahab takes the throne in the north. The klutzy Ahaziah was childless, so his brother Jehoram follows on the throne of Israel. Yep. If you're paying attention, you've noticed this fellow's got the same name as his counterpart in the South. Isn't that convenient? Don't worry, they don't overlap for long. The northern Jehoram takes one tiny step in the right direction and takes down his father Ahab's pillar shrine to Baal. Jehoram has at least enough sense to do that much. But then he carries on with business as usual. And though the royal family may no longer have their own personal shrine to Baal, many in the country that had momentarily turned its eyes back to us are now looking to Baal and sampling the menu of God's a la carte again. 
In the meantime, Elisha is proving himself to be a fitting successor to Elijah. At times, he too is rather curt and grumpy, but he performs compassionate miracles that affirm his calling in Elijah's footsteps. Elisha has his own miraculous oil for a widow incident, though in contrast to Elijah's just-enough boot camp, Elijah provides gallons upon gallons. Rather, we provide gallons of oil at Elisha's request, in order to get her out of debt and save her kids from slavery. Then, just in case there's any doubt about Elisha, like Elijah, he also raises a boy from the dead, this time the son of a woman other than she who's been blessed with a swimming pool of oil. Second Kings 4 summarizes all of these. We won't take the time to process all of our work through Elisha's hands. For extra credit, read two more episodes in 2 Kings 4 that symbolize our protecting and providing for our people. We do want to briefly mention his encounter with Naaman. Naaman commands the army of Aram, Syria, and I've blessed him with victory upon victory, including in our disciplinary action against Israel. But now, Naaman has got leprosy. He's also got a girl he took captive as a slave in Israel who is serving his wife. And this nameless yet faithful daughter straight up tells the great general that my prophet in Samaria, Elisha, would totally be able to provide a miraculous cure for this stigmatizing disease. Naaman is desperate and resolves to take the girl's advice. The coming encounter is obviously going to be about my power and about how to go about asking for it. Naaman's got his habitat thinking cap on, so his approach is to send a heap of silver, gold, and fancy clothes to the king of Israel with a letter asking that Naaman be cured of his leprosy. The general, of course, doesn't have the faintest whiff of Jehoram's faith issues. The Syrian commander assumes that the king of Israel has access to Israel's God, this Yahweh that Naaman's heard about. We could easily break out into applying this to your life in terms of having a reputation for following me but not actually doing so. Then we'd have to explore the damaging witness that could result from your not having a life to back up a reputation associated with me but we'll let you and our spirit work that out yourselves. Jehoram has never said a word to me in his life, but Naaman doesn't know that, and Israel is still known as my people. Jehoram is clueless and actually gets upset that such a request, at which he should be delighted, gets made of him. Fortunately, Elisha gets word of Naaman's request and sends directly for the Syrian general himself. So Naaman pulls up with his horses and chariots in front of Elisha's modest home. Elisha hears them, but does not run out to behold the spectacle of the general's arrival. Elisha has seen one of our chariots and doesn't need to see Naaman's. Instead, Elisha sends a messenger out to the general, instructing him to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times in order to be healed. Being who he is, Naaman is accustomed to getting a great deal of attention and figures he should rate some kind of Elijah-esque firework treatment or at least physical contact with Elisha. 
In disgust and pride, Naaman turns to go, offended that he didn't even merit an appearance by the prophet. Fortunately, the general has an astute servant of his own that stops him and says, If the prophet asked you to do something really difficult in order to be healed, you'd have done it in a heartbeat. Why is doing this simple thing so difficult? Naaman may be proud, but he's no fool and hears the wisdom in these words. He immerses himself in the Jordan seven times. Tuck away for later this image of cleansing in the Jordan, please. He comes up clean as a whistle on that last poetic repetition, a new creation, as it were. And by now you know that his response is what we're going for, from him, from the nations around Israel, and from you. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That's 2 Kings 5.15. The campaign begun by Elijah on Mount Carmel against Baal has now come full circle as a Syrian general declares his monotheistic faith in me. The sad irony in this is that the king of Israel is not able to make the same statement. He is the king of my people but he is still Ahab's son. Now, we want you to know about Naaman for a couple reasons. First is what we just pointed out, the faith in me now carried by an outsider, someone as far as possible from being part of my chosen people, a leader of their enemy, in fact. I have healed him of his disease, and he has placed his faith in me alone not just in me as the best choice from amongst his local options, but in me as in I am the only God. Like the Queen of Sheba back in the golden days of Solomon, this outward flow of faith and influence is how this is all supposed to work. My people have not been chosen or called to insulated exclusivity in their belief in and allegiance to me. I have placed them in a state of special favor in order that they may all serve as a priesthood to the nations, to facilitate and empower others into relationship with me. Theirs is a truly unique and vital role in the Abra plan, but it is a role that lasts for but an age, a long but impermanent one. In serving so, however, my people point toward and carry the plan through to its final destiny, that of relational blessing, cleansing, and reconciliation with all the peoples of the earth, not just one. Naaman is utterly representative of that final destination. His second lesson stems from the fact that he is thoroughly a man of his time and station and thinks he should pay in some way for what we have done for him. Remember the heap of silver, gold, and fancy clothes. Naaman offers a present to Elisha as thanks or payment for his healing, and Elisha comes close to cursing in the way he says no. He actually speaks in the form of a vow that we've never mentioned before. For as long as Yahweh lives, I will not accept anything from you. A colorful never. We point this out for a couple reasons. First, I cannot be bought, friend. You can't trade with me as an equal, which is what Naaman tries to do at first. 
He begins in pride seeking to negotiate with me his healing, but it is when he is humble and obeys my simple command that he is healed. That healing comes from my pleasure to do so on his behalf, not because he has earned my favor. Humble obedience is the path he finds to healing from me, not negotiation. Rewind and listen to those two sentences again. Secondly, we point the issue of treasure exchange out as an example and indictment against those who say they will act or pray before my throne on your behalf in exchange for a fee of some kind. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of tithing support that puts a roof over a rabbi's head and food in their children's mouths and braces on the kid's teeth. All you have to do is look at the Levitical system we established to see that taking care of my representatives is most definitely on my radar. No, I'm talking about the quid pro quo in which too many that bandy about my name exchange. They're not representing me, but themselves, essentially charging fees for prayer, saying I will bless a person only after they have blessed the plate as it comes by or after they have deposited cash in the money box in front of a rank of candles. Let me tell you, whatever you need prayer for, you can ask me yourself. There is no need to buy professional prayers. Those that charge for prayer on behalf of the dead may mean well, but are particularly misguided. Those that accept such payment most assuredly abuse the grieving. If you have a need, go ahead and ask me. Do not pay a religious sponsor to tell me I can hear you just fine. In fact, I can hear you better. And you'll know a real servant of mine when they, like Elisha, refuse your gift or payment to them for helping you. Sermon over, at least for now. Along with this episode, we'll turn to southern Jehoram and see how he's shaping up next time on The Way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.